Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now the Innovation Show, we welcome psychiatrist and founder CEO of the Institute of Neuropsychiatry and New York Times bestselling author of two great books, Better Than Normal and The ADHD Advantage. Welcome, Dr. Dale Archer. Hi, Ed. Good to be here. Dale, it's great to have you on the show. Before we start looking at the advantages of ADHD, it'd be great to get an understanding of the numbers and the variance in diagnosis from territory to territory. In the book, and also through my clinical experience in 30 years of psychiatry, is that if there's any diagnosis out there which would fall into the overdiagnostic realm, and especially within the United States, it would be ADHD. And just simple statistics show an incidence of over 11% in the United States. When you look at the UK, it's down closer to 2%. If you go to France, it's 0.5%. And within the United States, if you break it down by states, you see such a wide disparity such that in Nevada, you're at 5% incidence as opposed to North Carolina, over 15%, which begs the question, how can a diagnosis possibly be that accurate or correct if there's such a wide, diverse set of numbers and percentages in different countries, different states, different regions. So the problem is, you've mentioned this as well, there's a mismatch in the amount of specialists versus the amount of family doctors, for example, in the U.S. Well, yeah. So the bulk of prescriptions, which is easier to follow than diagnosis, because diagnosis can be problematic if you have an individual that's diagnosed and they're referred to a therapist, then you may not capture that individual. But we do know that, that with prescriptions, it's very easy to follow. We can track that to the, to the single prescription. And out of that 11%, about 50% plus of those individuals are medicated. And the bulk of the medication is written by family doctors as opposed to psychiatric specialists. We're seeing this perfect storm, Dale. You talk about this pop-up pill psychiatry mixed with a multi-billion dollar pharmacy industry, absentee parents and overstressed teachers. And then there's society which frames ADHD as a problematic issue when it could be a massive gift. Yeah, it is a gift. But the problem is it's a gift with caveats. And it's certainly not a gift if you're going to be forced into a traditional school system and forced to learn like other kids when your brain functions in a completely different fashion. So if we take a brain which has ADHD, which one of the chapters in the book is a diagnosis of boredom, so these brains are easily bored, and you say you're going to sit in a classroom for eight hours a day and you're going to study one subject per hour and then you're going to go to another and you're going to repeat this five days a week, and you're going to do it nine months a year, and you're going to do it from the time you're five until the time you're 17, well then, that sounds boring in and of itself, but to the ADH brain, that would be virtually torture, because that's not how our brains work. So in order to realize the gift, there are many things that need to be addressed, but the first is the understanding that 
it is a different brain. It's not necessarily an abnormal brain. This is one of the key things. It's just that we have this cookie-cutter approach to education. We treat everybody the same. It's the same with other things like autism, dyslexia, where people have these gifts, but both society and then the education system tries to make them fit in rather than fitting the system to work for them. Right. The entire purpose of the educational system around the world is partly to teach and to educate, but every bit as much, it's to socialize. So to train the child into standards of behavior. And you don't want anyone sticking out on the edges. You want everyone to conform. And so that's what the, the educational system does and you know when i started in psychiatry and that was a long time ago that was back in the 80s uh, we had a uh, a very very big normal box i call it so the normal box is everyone's personality and you think of a big box and you dump all these personalities into the normal box and there were quirks and idiosyncrasies and people that were a little different here and there and some people we consider a bit weird but they still felt fell within this normal box, within the realm of normal. And what I've seen over the last 30 plus years of practice is that we've shrunk the normal box and we've made it smaller and smaller and smaller. And unless you fit within this new paradigm, this new definition of what constitutes normal, then you're labeled as abnormal. And in psychiatry, being abnormal means you need to be fixed. And unfortunately, that means you need a medication. So we tell these people that fall just outside the realm of normal, don't worry, we can make it better. You can't sleep well, you have a little anxiety, you're a little sad, we have just the pill for you, we're gonna fix it, we're gonna take care of it. And ADHD, of course, the tragedy of ADHD is this is with our children, and sometimes very, very young children, sometimes children that are as young as two or three years of age that are being forced to take medication, really because their brains don't function the way the majority of their peers' brains function. They're being medicated. It's absolutely crazy. And it's one of the major reasons I wanted to get on uh, you on the show. One of the brilliant quotes you said, Dale, is when you're always trying to conform to the norm, you lose your uniqueness, which is the foundation of your greatness. And that just absolutely sung to me and I said I have to get you on the show I have to share this because it's that piece isn't it I mean all business is talking about disruption they're looking for different thinkers yet we're doing this at the source of that greatness we're blocking it off we're getting rid of it we're sedating it even worse than that we're, we're calling it a disease we're calling it a mental illness so yeah we're blocking it and we're trying to get everyone to conform to the norm but we're not just saying, hey, yeah, you need to be normal. We're saying, take this pill so you can become normal. It really is a tragedy of epic proportions. And, you know, my hope, which has been there for quite some time and hadn't been realized, unfortunately, because, you know, Big Pharma Rx for ADHD meds keeps skyrocketing from 600 million in the year 2000 to well over $9 billion and uh, continuing to climb. But, my hope is that at some point we recognize the fact that being different can be a huge advantage for many different realms 
But certainly within, if we want to look strictly within the tech field alone, then that creativity is needed at this time in our history more than ever. Yeah, and you talk about some of the heroes of ADHD, which you are yourself, I have to add. You talk about the likes of David Nealman, the Jeff Blue CEO, and Richard Branson, for example. Right, yeah, David Nealman was probably uh, the, my favorite interview, and, and the guy, of course, was the founder of JetBlue Airlines. He'd moved down to Brazil and now has another venture called Azul Airlines. And uh, of course, it was both of us being se severely ADHD. It was hard for us to connect, but when we finally did, it was a great, a great interview. But, you know, he asked me at the end, he was going, you know, because I had terrible difficulty in school. I couldn't remember. I was constantly late with my assignments. I couldn't focus or concentrate on anything. And he goes, how could a brain like mine, a brain that could barely make it through elementary, junior high, and high school, how could that brain be the same one that could found a paradigm-shifting airline? And the answer was that he fell in love with the airline industry and that with the ADHD brain, with our inability to focus comes a very strong ability to hyper-focus on something that we fall in love with. And in his case, you know, he started working in the baggage department of an airline and then gradually worked his way up and learned and read. And everything about airlines, Tim, was so fascinating that he was able to found his own. So with the love of an activity, comes the ability to hyper-focus, and that was the answer to his question, which is what I told him. Probably anything else that he hadn't have had that amount of passion about, he would not have been able to be successful. But fortunately, many ADHDers who are figuring it out on their own bounce around through so many jobs because they get bored, and with luck, they'll stumble into something that they just absolutely love, and there is then the, the hope for their success. But how much easier it would be if we could target these when, individuals when they're kids and say, all right, we're going to expose you to a lot of different things because there will be something in there that you're going to be extremely good at, and we're going to help you find it. And that's our job as parents, isn't it? To expose well, these children to the opportunities and then watch and observe to see what really catches that hyper-focus. Uh, yeah, I would say the job of parents, the job of educators, the job of mental health professionals, the job of society as a whole. Absolutely. You talk about some of the gifts. It'd be great to share them with our audience and the way that you reframe them. Symptoms are actually gifts if they're focused in the right way. So one of the, the ones which I found uh, fascinating, and actually there was a study that to, to back this up, was resilience. And, you know, the common wisdom is that the ADHD is not resilient because the brain is bouncing all over the place. And so without the ability to be able to focus on day-to-day -day routine tasks, then when a crisis comes along, it's going to be enough to tip you over the edge. Well, what they did was they, they got a group of ADHDers and a group of normal controls, and they were call, all college students. If the ADHDers were taking meds, they were taken off the meds, so they were unmedicated. And then they put them through a battery of psychological testing in order to test for resilience. 
course, resilience is the ability to be able to cope with uh, a huge stressor and be able to continue functioning. And they found that, surprisingly to everyone, that the ADHDers did better. And when you think about it, maybe it's not that surprising because, first of all, it was a select group of ADHDers. They had made it to college, and many with the condition never make it to college. They can barely get through high school. So if you make it to college, then you've had to come up with your own set of strategies to be able to cope with this inability to focus and the poor concentration uh, and all of the symptoms. And you come up with this, and it's very, very difficult. So it's like you're going through a crisis almost every day, but you've come up with a strategy to deal with. So then when you take a series of psychological tests that test your ability to handle a crisis, well, you've already learned how to do that. And you've been doing it for a long time, and that's how you got to college in the first place. So resilience is a great one, and it often overlooked, and there's a lot more research that needs to be done on it, but I think that's really uh, fantastic. Another one is bingo brain. So bingo brain is basically the ADHD brain does not think well in a linear fashion. So if you think about a bingo parlor and the bingo balls are bouncing all around and every now and then one will touch another and touch the, the side. And I liken that to how the thoughts in an ADHD brain function. So it's, it, you start thinking about a problem and the next thing you know, you're off on a variety of tangents, but each of these tangents is there for a reason. And if you're able to harness that, you're able to come up with some really far out creative type ideas that others who are approaching in a step A, step B, step C, steps D fashion would never be able to come up with. So it's a creativity that goes along with the nonlinear thinking of the brain. That's brilliant, Dale. And you yourself, I mean, we, we talked about David Nealon, but you're talking from experience here. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, as a parent, what did your parents do? What did David Nealman's parents do to enable this, to see that you have a gift? And then what did you do yourself to get that resilience and to get through the system that didn't allow for your gifts? Well, you know, in my particular case, then uh, there was no ADHD diagnosis when I was going through school. Uh, we were just considered troublemakers. And I think David is a little bit younger than I am. So for him, it might have been uh, on the radar screen. But, you know, we were labeled as hyperactive and problem children. And so for me, I was lucky enough to be relatively intelligent. And the ADHDers that tend to be smarter tend to have a better chance of success on their own without help. And so for me, I was lucky with that, but I had to come up with my own strategies on how to do everything. I couldn't just sit down and study for a test. I'd have to go for a long uh, run or a bike ride or exercise in order to hyperactivate my brain, and then I could sit down and study, for example. I could study for short, brief, intense bursts of time, and then I'd have to take a break and do something else, and then I could come back to it. 
So you learn these different strategies as you go. And of course, for me, I think it's what drove me into the field of psychiatry because I became so fascinated with the fact that I'd look how other people were doing it and how I was doing it. And I would say, wow, these, we are not learning the same way. We aren't studying the same way. And we're probably seeing the world of our schooling in a completely different way as well. So I, I think for me, it was, there was a lot of luck that was involved. You know, I don't, I, for my parents, since they didn't recognize ADHD at the time, then I got punished more than average and sent to the principal's office and, you know, all the, the usual things that uh, a hyperactive child will, will go through. Um, and I, and uh, again, I think that I was lucky and succeeded in spite of the system. Had I come along 20 years later, my fear is I would have been slapped on medication and would have become a totally different person. I was going to ask that because you mentioned as well, it wasn't in medical journals till 1980, and then it was introduced as a diagnosis in 1994. But since then, Correct. diagnosis has skyrocketed. And you know, you mentioned the pharma part of it. There's some crazy stuff out there where a lot of the research is being funded by the pharma. You mentioned even comic books in some cases are subsidized by the big pharma companies. And it's that bias. It's that carrot for people who are diagnosing, who are prescribing the drugs that must really taint the diagnosis in the first place. Well, that yeah, and, and as I talk about in the book, I mean, yeah, but big pharma bears a lot of blame, but they certainly don't aren't the only ones to bear blame. You've got a psychiatry training system that basically focuses on medication almost exclusively, and whereas when I trained, it was fifty percent therapy, fifty percent uh, medication, and it was a blend of both. Um, you've got the harried teachers who have 30 plus students in their classroom and having one or two that are a little different or act out in, a, in some way, shape or form is a huge problem for them. So they're looking for anything that helps. And of course, the way the system typically works is the problem kids are sent to the school psychologist and the school psychologist does a brief eval and then says, yeah, your child has ADHD. They need to go see Dr. So-and-so for medication. You got the pop of pill culture, the mentality that we don't want to go through therapy. It takes too long. It's too involved. Rather, we want to take a pill and we want it to be better immediately. So there are a lot of things that go in there. The you know, nine billion dollars a year in pharmaceutical sales, of course, being a big one, but not the only one. Right, and you know, you talk about this, and and this really resonated with me. Having children, Google can be a terrible thing. Because anything happens, you see a rash on your child, you see they have a temperature, you turn to Google and you Google it, you'll find symptoms. And you mentioned this, that if a child exhibits five of 12 markers, they are not ADHD. But if they just get one more possible one, they can be diagnosed. That's right. Yeah. So the, the DSM criteria, you basically have a list of eight, nine symptoms. And again, you, four or five, you don't have it, five or four of nine, you don't have it. Five of nine, you've got it. And so no grading of the severity of the ADHD, which is, of course, I've got the self-test in the book, which looks to grade the ADHD severity on a scale of one to 10. And 
you know, in, in the old days when ADHD was first a diagnosis, you would have to have a scale of the nine, the 10, even the 10 plus realm before you'd even receive the diagnosis. And in today's world, you could score a five out of 10 and still have the diagnosis and even worse, be medicated for that diagnosis. Yeah, and it's the, it's that piece that's the great change, sedating possible greatness. And, you know, it was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about for this show was the innovation gifts. And you talked about it there, that bingo brain connecting dots where others don't see them. I mean, you've put this into place yourself where you're actually paying back your own learnings into the society with the Archer Institute, for example. I'd like to say that it was a lifelong plan, but but I got to tell you that I didn't realize I had ADHD and actually receive a diagnosis from a colleague until I wrote the book before the ADHD advantage, Better Than Normal. And in Better Than Normal, which was more of a philosophical book on psychiatry as a whole and focused on a, a lot of different issues, but also eight psychiatric diagnoses and, and uh, how they, maybe they really weren't diagnoses if uh, looked at in a different light. But ADHD was one of them. And as I was writing the chapter, I was going through and going, wow, you know, I never really thought about this before, but I've got that, I've got that, I've got that. And could be that I had ADHD. And so I didn't want to self-diagnose. So I did go get a formal eval and, and sure enough, I was off the charts. <laughs> and so that was what triggered my interest in writing the next book, uh, The ADHD Advantage. And then when I was writing that book, then um, the opportunity to uh, build a psychiatric facility uh, then presented itself, which I'm in the middle of doing now here down in Louisiana, uh, building the Archer Institute, which is going to open uh, hopefully sometime this summer, where uh, hopefully we'll be able to do some good and make a difference. And what 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 will that focus on, Dale? Like what what kind of uh, practices could we envisage from the Archer Institute? Well, it's going to be a uh, multi-level. Uh, uh, projects so such that there's a phase one, phase two, and phase three. So phase one will be strictly inpatient psychiatry. And it, the, the whole focus of the treatment will be general psychiatry. So uh, phase one, though, obviously, if you need it to be in the hospital for a psychiatric condition, it will be the, the more severe diagnoses, bipolar, schizophrenia. Um, Phase two will then expand to include alcohol and drug treatment. And then phase three will bring the outpatient component, which is really where I foresee the, the work with ADHD to be done uh, in phase three. But, you know, the need for, in Louisiana in particular, for a full-service psychiatric inpatient facility was off the charts. So we're starting with the inpatient and then we're moving on from there. Brilliant, brilliant. And, and another thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, you're going to implement a lot of those therapies in the Archer Institute, but what can people do at home? For example, people whose children have been diagnosed with ADHD, and you do say this in the book, I'm not out there talking to you to damn the diagnosis. You say this, there are some people who actually need the medication, but there's other things you can do as well. What can people do at home? What can people do in the education system, parents and teachers, for example? Right. So certainly I'm not anti-medication, even though it probably sounds like that to your listeners. But I do think that, again, I look at ADHD on a continuum going from one to 10. And if you're in the nine, 10, 10 plus realm, 
then you probably do have ADHD and you may even need meds. But I think that the one piece of advice that I would want to give to all parents, to all educators, to all practitioners is that medication needs to be a last resort, not a first resort. Because we know that there are many things that can be done to help with ADHD. And so the one thing that I would tell a parent is that if your school is telling you that they think your child has ADHD or you've done some reading and you think that perhaps they have ADHD, it would be to insist on a therapy-based program first and to try everything you can to avoid medication rather than going straight to medication. That's the one thing right there, is look at the non-pharmaceutical interventions first. That's fantastic advice. And, and Dale, stuff like you talk about even a child doing homework, for example, to, to, to make things up yourself, try things, put on the TV, put on headphones, put on music, etc. What about in the classroom? Well, you know, unfortunately in the classroom, we don't have a lot of say because most classrooms are dictated by the school board and the school board has a set of parameters that this is how you will teach your class, period, end of story. So, you know, certainly there are schools that I talk about, Eagle Hill, the Fusion Academy, and I mean, there are dozens of schools, but unfortunately they're private and they're expensive that focus on educating the ADHD. And then look at the fact that our brains work well in short bursts and then need a little exercise, a little break, and then another short burst. So, for example, I mean, some simple examples would be if you're a parent and your child has homework, then rather than doing all of the math for an hour, then all of the English for an hour, then all of the reading for an hour, look at doing those in 15-minute blocks and do math, English, reading, and then repeat. And then take breaks, frequent breaks, to allow the brain to recharge. And then exercise is extremely effective. Remember that hyperactivity can be one of the byproducts of the ADHD brain. So exercise has a calming effect on the brain. So whether it's a walk around the block, a quick workout, uh, you, you know, out in the backyard, something in order to, again, get the brain rested and refocused. Those are some simple things you can do at home. In the classroom, unless we get change at the educational system level, then that's much more problematic. Dale, last question is this one. It's something we're seeing more and more in the world is people's focus and attention is being challenged anyway with technology training ourselves to be reactive to our phone, to our emails, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be muddy ground here. There's going to be foggy area, a gray area where people don't know do they have the ADHD or are they just losing focus? Have you seen anything on that, for example? Well, you know, one of the advantages to ADHD that I talk about in the book is the ability to multitask. So there, there's the possibility that in our new wired world where everything is going electronic and everything is online and everything is accessible to our fingertips could actually be beneficial to the ADHD. Now, way too soon to be able to, to, to tell that, but, you know, in terms of multitasking, again, they've done studies on that. And an interesting argument that was that during the studies, they found they took ADHDers and they gave them multitask to do, and they did control groups again, and they had them do a variety of tasks. And what they found was 
that the ability to multitask was about equal across both groups. And so, of course, the, the, those who believe that ADHD is a broken brain said, aha, see everything you've been saying is incorrect. They don't multitask better. And that's wrong. Well, then they went back and did the test and also did a questionnaire with the individuals who had done the multitasking, who had done the study. And what they found that, yes, it's true that the ability to do it was pretty close to equal, but that the ADHDers looked at it as fun and exciting and had a great time while they were doing the test. <laughs> and the normals, quote unquote, were stressed out and thought it was bad and terrible and would never want to go through that again. Brilliant. So certainly in a short-term test, they may be equal, but if it's something that's fun and you love doing, then the odds are you're going to do it again. You're going to get better at it. You're going to do it over time. So I thought that was great. And um, and I said, no, actually, that proves our point even more so than we were saying before. But, you know, in terms of the of the of the brave new digital world, we don't really know. It's too soon. I mean, we're just now having kids now that are reaching out adolescent who lessons who have grown up with a computer and with a cell phone in their hands and how are they going to function? What's their incidence of ADHD going to be? These are all big questions for the future. Absolutely. And a place where people can find out and keep up to date with that type of research and all your work is drdalearcher.com. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Highly recommend the book, The ADHD Advantage. Dr. Dale Archer, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. It was my pleasure.